Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're uh, going to continue Guide Talk, the extended version. I always enjoy when uh, these guys can stick around and, and uh, be part of the second uh, half of the uh, show. So, gentlemen, welcome back. I've got the power panel today, Dr. Uh, Peter Kapsner, along with pastors uh, Justin Jepson, Tom Brock, and Tom Paris. Gentlemen, welcome to Hour 2. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bill. The extended version. All right, we heard a news item uh, on the during the, the break, and Tom, uh, would you share what you heard? Yeah, the now just you got to know the Episcopal Church in America is hyper liberal, and has they've been pushing the LGBT agenda for years. And the Episcopal Church used to be a wonderful denomination, beautiful worship, Book of Common Prayer is as biblical as you can get. But in recent years, in in England, but especially in America, it's gone bonkers. So get this: here was the news item that you just had on this channel about an hour ago. The Episcopal Bishop of Albany is a conservative. He's not allowing gay weddings in the churches in his diocese. Mm -hmm. So now he's being brought up on charges before the authorities to be defrocked. Can you imagine this? Not a number of years. A few years ago, if you would marry two men in the Episcopal Church, you'd lose your your job over that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't marry them, you're going to maybe lose your job. This is how demonic some of our liberal mainline denominations have become. And same kind of garbage going on in the ELCA Lutheran Church, the PCUSA Presbyterians, the United Methodists, and especially the most liberal of all, the United Church of Christ. So what days in which we live. Mm-hmm. Anybody else want to throw in on that? I think, I think you'd find it interesting because the Episcopal Church, if you ask them, is Jesus Christ the head of the church? They're, every one of those bishops, everyone on that council would say, yes. But here's the key factor. We can say Jesus is Lord of the church, but if we don't do what Jesus says in his word, then we're making ourselves the head of the church. And the Episcopal Church needs to get on its knees and repent because the Lord will judge them for what they're doing. All right. You know, I, yeah, I would just add uh, one last quick piece of it. I think to, to help understand maybe how we've gotten here so much is that there, there was a pretty sustained attack done on the authority and, and, and the, um, yeah, just that, the authority of scriptures. I, I remember there was some projects maybe in the 1990s, early 2000s, something called the Jesus Seminar, as well as a few other kinds of conferences and councils that were happening, especially in the Western world, among Western scholars and academics, in which they really began to um, pick apart the idea that the scriptures could be reliable. And, and they basically, so many of them came to the conclusion that the scriptures actually weren't reliable. And so once you take that move, and many denominations did take that move, they, they began to say that the scriptures might be something that would be inspiring, and some of the stories we would hold to be true, but they even went so far as to say, this percentage of the words of Jesus that are recorded in scripture, we can trust. The remaining percentage of words of Jesus, well, who knows where they came from? And, and as a result of that, 
the, the thinking that's going on in academia and in some of those uh, seminaries and places, it does ultimately eventually bleed down to the church. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, academic thinking might take 10 years, sometimes it's 50 years, but it's a pretty well established pattern that that what goes on among scholars then trains up future pastors who then find themselves into the church. And there's many pastors who grew up believing that the scriptures simply were an interesting historical document, but but no longer authoritative. And those are some of the pastors that are pastoring many of the churches. And and when you go to that place, then the option you have for how you're going to conduct your life in the church becomes uh, related to well, this is what the people want, or this is what society is teaching us, or this is maybe what we, we understand to be the case in, in some of the sciences, all of which are important spheres, but they need to take their cues from Scripture. And when you take Scripture out of play, well, then you're constantly going to be chucked around by, by the, the latest winds going on socially uh, in our culture. The, the most famous heretic of the Episcopal Church is the Reverend Bishop John Shelby Spong. Now, get this, everybody. This is an American bishop. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe Jesus died in our place for our sins. He denies that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. He's been a bishop for years. Now, he's finally retired, but they never disciplined him. So here's Mm -hmm. a bishop over a diocese who doesn't believe in the basics of the Christian faith, but they did nothing to discipline him. So what do we have today? You can believe whatever you want and still be a member of of an Episcopal church. That's how tragic it is. Mm. Mm. All right. I'll go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, I'm reminded, you know, we were talking about earlier that conversation around like prophets and, um, and just reminded of how, how much Jesus talked about beware false prophets. That, that, that will be coming. And of course, that happened, you know, right away in the first century and has, has continued every century since. And, I, you know, I think Paul's writings and talking about, you know, being wearing of really false teachers and prophets that, that and people will seek to accumulate teachers to satisfy their itching ears. And I think really what we're just seeing here is that, we're, I mean, we're seeing really the, the, the fruit of the prophecy of Jesus saying that these false prophets are going to come, they're leading many astray. And just to echo what's already been shared, that it really results back to a breakdown of, of, of authority and where they're finding that authority, that is it, is it in human sentimentalism or is it in the Holy Scriptures? Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, I think we, sometimes we, we use what C.S. Lewis called the chronological snobbery, that we think we know better because we, we, we've existed later in the historical timeline and we can actually go back and reinterpret and reinvent you know what's what's been held as orthodoxy since the since the founding of Christianity. Um, so I, yeah, it's 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 so it's really really messy. And so I think unless we have some type of objective rubric by which we um, base our standard of life and faith and conduct upon, I mean this this will only continue to happen. And I think if I'm reading the scripture right, it's going to only continue to get worse <laughs> until until Jesus comes back. And I love the fact you used the word rubric. I'm not sure what it meant in that context, but I love the fact you used it. <laughs> and chronolo- chronological snobbery. That was a good one. I'm I, so I don't lost even know right for now. sure what that means, but that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now Bill, this will be right up your alley as a comedian. Go back 50 years. Flip Wilson, tremendous comedian. So I'm on the Ed Sullivan Show. He had a routine where he was the pastor, a female pastor of the church of what's happening now. <laughs> and that's exactly where we've come. Yeah. And it was a warning 50 years ago. Wow. This is where the church was headed. I don't think he meant it that way, but I think many people heard it that way, and now we're seeing the reality. Yeah. All right, here's a question from a listener. It's amazing how God will allow us to question him. 
but I think of Job. Job questioned God, but I don't think he liked some of his answers, like, where were you when I created the world? So what's your uh, your advice or counsel on, on questioning God? Well, he can take it, and he's really good at knowing how to respond to it, and there's nothing we can say to him that he hasn't already heard. And so part of building that relationship with the Lord Jesus, I mean, when you go into it and you say it honestly, even in your frustration, uh, he takes that into account, and he helps reshape us to think like he does. My greatest fear is Christians who hold things inside and never voice them to the Lord or never voice them to other Christians and build up bitterness or resentment or fear or anger on the inside, and as a result, um, they die miserable old people. So the Lord can handle it, and I would say take anything you want to him, and he'll be patient and listen. Thank you, Tom Yeah, I agree. I, I love that, Tom. I think that's. I think when we can direct those questions, that those, that questioning of God um, to Him in prayer, you know, I, what's so powerful about that that the account of Job is, and you know, and all of his questionings and all of his, you know, why and how this happened, and which, you know, all of that, and at the very last end of the, you know, Job forty, forty one, forty two, it really the the answer to Job's question was just a deeper revelation of who he was questioning, and. Um, and that's really, the, I mean, if it's God, that's the best. Sometimes when we question God, he, he makes himself known to us. And I think certainly can handle it. I think Isaiah 118, you know, when he says, come, let us reason together. Let's have a, let's have a conversation. You know, though your sins are like scarlet, they should be whiter than wool. Though they were red like crimson, they'll be washed whiter than snow. And so I think that um, that question, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's healthy to get that out. And I, I remember one time, I was wrestling with some really why questions over some pain and suffering and, and, the, and the, the, short, uh, the shortened life of a friend who was, who was lost in a motorcycle accident. And I was, I was angry with God. And I remember sitting on the side of a lake on the college of, at Northwestern as, a, as an undergrad student, and I, and I had all this questioning inside of me. And, and, I, and I, for the first time in my life, I, sh- I rose my, raised my hands up. I essentially shook my fist at God and said, God, why? I'm mad at you. I don't understand. And let me tell you what, it started there with my hands shaking and my, my fist clenched. Um, and, and I ended up moments later on, on literally with my face on the dirt, bowed down in humility, mm-hmm. feeling such a deep sense of presence and peace because I was actually had the courage to get outside what was going on inside of me that God already knew was there. But there's something about that bringing that out into the open, into the context of a conversation with God that resulted in really, I mean, a, a life transforming moment. Yeah, so, I, I mean, it's an incredible story, Justin. Just, yeah, just, it just gonna, that just calls to mind the beatitude when Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, right? For they will be comforted. Yeah, and and yeah. in that original language, it says, it's along the lines of, Blessed are those who get out here what's going on in here, meaning getting out into the open mm-hmm. with God. What's right. going on, and and those people begin to receive the comfort, and I just sort of heard in your story. Yeah, thank yeah. You. Thank you. Let me take a little break. Uh, Guy talk still has time for a question or two. Let me know eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. You guys are crushing it today. I'll be right back.
Welcome back to Guide Talk. Awfully glad to have the power panel in place today. Gentlemen, question I have for you. Forgiveness uh, is very necessary, but it can be so, so hard at times. So how can we teach ourselves to forgive when we don't want to? Well, I I would say, though, that's such a good question. (laughs) Um, Forgiveness is really hard. And I I think, and honestly, this is something that I'm I'm relearning right now. And it's just something I'm walking through um, with some family relationships of how much forgiveness truly is a choice that is enabled by God's grace. And I think, you know, um, I think first it's remembering, you know, forgive as we've been forgiven. um, And that how much forgiveness not only is it a choice, but it's not, it's not a one-time, it's not a one-stop shop, that it's truly a journey. Um, and, uh, you know, I really have been compelled recently into some uh, recent study in the Lord's Prayer of just, you know, the, that's meant to be a daily prayer. And that idea of forgive us our sins as we, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then it follows up with that, unless we forgive others, um, the Lord will not forgive us. And so this is, it's a really um, it's a really serious matter. And I think sometimes that forgiveness, um, what it doesn't mean, though, it doesn't mean necessarily reconciliation. It's a step in that direction. And so I, I think you can forgive someone, but still not trust them. And so that forgiveness is a is a heart issue, but trust is a wisdom issue. And um, so, but I think teaching myself, it's more, <laughs> it's more of that reminder of how I've been forgiven um, and, and how I extend that to others, uh, really as a recipient of God's grace and then extending that to, out to others. Now, Peter, you I've know, got I, another I, chart for you, because on this chart, what I've tried to get across, and I've, it took me a long time to learn, on the left of the chart is the Holy Spirit coming into our life, giving us spiritual awakening, convincing us who Jesus is and our surrender to him. Then everything else that comes after that is based on thankfulness. And if we can get that into our head, and so I don't forgive people because they deserve it. I don't forgive others because even they've asked me for it. I've learned I've got to forgive people out of thankfulness for what Jesus has already done for me. And when I get Jesus in the picture, as much as I still as a human being don't want to always forgive, I have to forgive. And my level of thankfulness is going to be the level at which I'm willing to take that next step. And it's hard, but it really has made for me a huge difference uh, in terms of, of giving people, loving people, serving people, giving money and time, uh, because I'm thankful. And and somebody asked, do I have to forgive someone if they aren't sorry and haven't asked for my forgiveness? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the answer is, yeah, you still do. And here's one. I, I think I, I saw this on TV. Uh, here's somebody who kills somebody's sister and it comes time for the relatives to get up and, and and just one of them just blasted the guy. I hope you burn in hell for what you've done to my sister, et cetera. And I think it was either the same day or the same week, totally different family. Again, the sister's been killed. And the guy gets up and says, well, what you've done is so horrified my family. And it's it, it'll be with us now till we die. But in Jesus Christ, I forgive you for what you've done. I pray you'll come to repentance and find Christ before you died. Now, which of those two families is free? It's the second family that's free. And so I'm not saying it's easy. I can't forgive people on my own. That's why I pray, Holy Spirit, help me forgive these people. I agree with Justin. 
forgiving somebody doesn't mean you trust them. <laughs> I think you can fully forgive someone, but not trust them. So it's a matter of me in prayer saying, God, not in my power, because I can't do this, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've commanded me to forgive. I forgive them in Jesus' name, and I move on. That doesn't mean I feel good things about them from then on. It doesn't mean I, I don't think of them and what they've done from then on, but it means before God in prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I forgive this person, whether my feelings ever catch up to that or not. Yeah, I think that's so well said, Tom, on some of that too. And it's, I think as long as we get the idea that forgiveness doesn't create amnesia about the situation, which I think right. some of us would hope that it would right. do, because typically when there's a situation where forgiveness is needed, it's it's because uh, somebody's created a, a significant amount of anger and grief, uh, some combination of those two things that I'm now wrestling with as it relates to the relationship. And so by extending the hand of forgiveness, and, and Tom, you said, do are we supposed to forgive even if people don't ask for it? And I don't know if I know the answer to that question entirely, but it's pretty compelling when Jesus is on the cross uh, in, in the Gospels and when Stephen in the book of Acts is stoned. There isn't a single person that is shouting crucify him, or there isn't a single person that is stoning Stephen in that instance that is saying, oh, you know, I really am going to ask for forgiveness right now. Right. And yet, what do those two do? They mm-hmm. both turn yeah. to them and say, Father, forgive them. They, they, they want forgiveness extended even in the in the absence of asking for it. And so I think what forgiveness does is it uh, it doesn't do away with the anger and grief maybe that we're experiencing in relationship. And I think that's why people say it's so hard to forgive. I still feel all this anger and grief. But the question is, is in forgiving, can you still go to a place of desiring another person's wholeness that they eventually will be whole and set free from whatever that sin is even as I'm wrestling with the anger and the grief, can, can that exist alongside of it? And I think that's the tricky thing, right, in terms of still wanting another person to ultimately be made whole. But that's part of the agape love that the Bible talks about, a, a willingness to sacrifice everything in myself so that another person would be, be rescued and restored uh, and made whole. And that's what Jesus did when he bore the sins of the cross. So uh, it doesn't mean that we trust people. It doesn't mean it does away with all the grief and anger immediately, but it does create a different baseline in the relationship. It, it doesn't make any, everything that a person did okay. It just simply means that I can still want their wholeness and pray for those who persecute me or, or bless those who curse me or love my enemies, even while I'm dealing with the grief and the anger that's legit. Yeah. Well, think about it. The antithesis to forgiveness. It's bitterness. It's getting revenge. Right. And Jesus has offered us something in forgiveness that is as mm-hmm. miraculous as anything else he's given us. Yeah. And, and Paul says, you know, don't take your own uh, revenge, my brothers. Uh, leave it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. There will be justice mm-hmm. for these people that have done these horrible things. But that's God's mm-hmm. job, not ours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's that old adage? You know, bitterness or resentment is like swallowing poison and hoping the other person dies. And so, you know, I think that, yeah, and can I, can I, you know, Tom, you had, you said, you know, let me just be really human. And you talked about, you know, the unanswered prayer and still getting angry. Something else that I've, you know, I've wrestled with, you know, you can forgive someone and still not trust them. You can forgive someone and still not like them. Yep. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) You you know, you can have a healthy, you know, I mean, you can have a sense of, you know, you can love them and want their, the desire, their wholeness, but it doesn't it really doesn't mean everything's okay, you know, and I think really we, we can't, 
equate forgiveness and, and reconciliation or forgiveness in a restored relationship as one and the same thing. They go together. That I mean, the, the ideal and God's perfect will is that it would, um, but that's not always the case. Nice job. All right. What about when you uh, encounter somebody who has a fair amount of intellectual pride? And they're, obviously that's a barrier to receiving truth uh, if, you, if you're full of pride. Is there a, a way or a strategy in talking to someone who's really full of themselves and their opinions when it comes to sharing the gospel? Hmm. Hmm. One of the best strategies I know of is I, I use a process called active listening. And it's reflecting back the feelings and the content of what someone has said. I've got to honestly tell you guys, I've led more people to Jesus Christ through the use of active listening than I have through the four spiritual laws. What I mean by that is people that are arrogant, self-centered, intellectually superior, think they know everything. You give them enough time to talk and you reflect back what they're saying and then begin to ask appropriate questions with that. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will begin to open up and for them to see themselves in the mirror like they've never seen before, because suddenly their talk starts to become foolish. And so I would really recommend look into the active listening and, and learn how to use that. It's a great tool for opening up people's hearts to the gospel and for letting their hearts be opened up to themselves. And, you know, too, what, uh, when, when somebody has intellectual questions or pride against the gospel, I, I, there is a great ministry where you, these you know, apologists like uh, evidence that demands a verdict. There's a great book by Josh McDowell. Mm-hmm. For the people that really need the evidence, I, that, that's a legitimate ministry. I think overwhelmingly, though, Paul the Apostle says, we are ambassadors for Christ, appealing to each man's conscience. You know, you can appeal to their mind, and, and sometimes you've got to do that, but I like to get right to the heart of things. You know, haven't you ever sinned? Don't you ever feel like you've you've violated your creator, yourself, your spouse, you know, what do you do with your sin? Well, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did to resolve our guilt. I mean, I like to go, you can go to the mind, you can go to the emotions, but I like to go right to the conscience. I like that. All right, we've got about 30 seconds left. If anybody else has a comment to make. All right. No, I Brock. think it just, I mean, I was just going to say quickly that it, 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 that is hard, Bill, isn't it? I mean, when people are, are very superior. I agree. I, I, I got to admit, I just sort of, I, I sort of tune it out. <laughs> and yeah. I, maybe that's not the right approach. I appreciate what Parrish said about that. No, I do too. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. I've loved uh, this time with you as I always look forward to it every week. And I know listeners uh, love it as well. So uh, thank you. Have a wonderful night and blessings to you and your families. Thank you, you Bill. Too, Bill. Thank you, Bill. You Thanks, too, Bill. Everybody. Talk to you guys yep. soon. All righty. That wraps up Guy Talk for today. We're going to take a little break. But when we come back, uh, Dr. Cal Beisner is going to be joining me. And we're going to talk about the woke uh, movement going on. Um, so we'll uh, take a short break and be right back.
I always look forward to talking to Dr. Cal Beisner. He's the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. It's a brilliant think tank with a lot of really smart people that think well. And he's uh, also came out with a a booklet on social justice versus biblical justice, which it's very important to understand the differences. And as we're uh, getting close to an election, I think uh, it's going to be a good opportunity to help us kind of cut through the confusion and make sure we embrace true justice as we make our election choices. Cal, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be back with you. Uh, I love having you on the program always. And the uh, the whole woke movement is really uh, shaking things up, isn't it? It sure is. And, you know, as Christians, we, we think, for example, of Micah 6.8, which says, uh, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. And we need to know what justice is. And unfortunately, a lot of things going by the name of justice nowadays, like social justice, mm-hmm. or the whole uh, woke progressive notion of, say, critical race theory, critical uh, critical gender theory, even critical legal theory, uh, they just have ideas of justice that are very much unbiblical. So what would be really nice is just if we kind of go through uh, some of the, the, again, the biblical understanding of justice. Yeah, um, this has been a major uh, area of study for me for mm, about 35 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, and I've written extensively on it, a number of different books and major articles and publications. So uh, what what I have done is I've studied very, very carefully every use of every different Hebrew and Greek word that is related to the ideas of justice and rights, righteousness, and so on, uh, throughout the Old and New Testaments. And on the basis of that study, looking carefully at how they're used, at what the ideas are in the context, I've come to this definition of justice uh, as, as the biblical definition. Justice means rendering impartially, That means we play no favorites. And proportionally, that is, the punishment fits the crime, the reward fits the behavior, right? Uh, To everyone, his due, that is, what is earned, what is is properly uh, merited, in conformity with the righteous requirements of God's moral law. Mm -hmm. And if we use that definition of justice, we recognize that the whole idea of you know, playing favorites with particular individuals or particular groups of people, um, giving them a, uh, a special consideration is, is actually unjust. And also, if we use that definition of justice, we recognize that the notion that the state is supposed to take things away from some people and give them to other people uh, is itself uh, injustice because for example, the Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal, and it doesn't conclude unless you are the government. Mm. Okay, so uh, talk a little bit about where the social justice movement is going, that, you know, what you just said would be uh, very unpopular with uh, most of the world. Uh, well, with much of it anyway. Much of it, yeah. Um, I was a little encouraged. Yeah, I was a little encouraged uh, just a couple of days ago to encounter a stat that uh, that actually people who would identify as part of the woke movement, the uh, the progressive 
uh, movement of this sort uh, probably constitute only about 8% of the American population, whereas uh, wow. those who would identify as traditional conservatives are probably closer to 25%. Um, but the news media, the entertainment media, and so on are pretty much all <laughs> part of that woke movement, and so they get a lot of, a lot of attention. So I'm not as, as uh, I'm not quite so so pessimistic as I was even just a few days ago. But the the social justice movement, um, allied with the Frankfurt School of the the uh, uh, cultural Marxist movement, uh, tends to think that justice means some degree of, if not perfection of, equality of condition among all people. People should have equal amounts of wealth, of of uh, you know, education, of housing, of power and position, and so on. Uh, now, typical conservatives will re- reply, uh, and, and Christians will reply, well, you can't, you can't achieve that without treating people differently, because people do different things. So equality of outcome is obviously not something to go for. But we would agree to equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if all we mean by equality of opportunity is there are no legal barriers to your pursuing whatever career you want to pursue, that's fine. But equality of, our, uh, outcome, uh, of opportunity uh, doesn't happen beyond that unless, indeed, you treat people differently. For instance, I'm 6'5". Uh, that meant that when I was young enough, I actually had you know, some prospect of becoming a, basketball, a professional <laughs> basketball player. Yeah. But, but my friend Dante in eighth grade, well, he was about 5'1", and he was never going to get any bigger than that. He just didn't have the opportunity that I had. Yeah. There's no way to equalize opportunities to people who are born to parents who love education and parents who couldn't care less, parents who, uh, um, you know, who, who have good jobs and parents who don't. You cannot equalize opportunity other than simply to remove legal barriers. That is justice. Mm-hmm. So with the government wanting to do more and more of the social programming that we see in the world today versus what I look at when I see the Good Samaritan who stopped and used his own funds to help the person in trouble, uh, what direction do you think we're headed if we if this country ends up going more towards a socialistic kind of uh, um, world? Well, I mean, where we would be headed is where other socialist countries have gone, and that is to widespread poverty. I mean, you can you can achieve some degree of equality through socialism, but it's equality in poverty rather than equality in, in prosperity. Uh, and in fact, what we've seen through economic history is that uh, countries that have more free market, more capitalistic economies, not only produce a whole lot more wealth than countries with uh, centrally planned socialistic economies, but also get that wealth into the hands of a whole lot more people. The lower class in more free market countries is considerably wealthier than not just the lower class, but the middle class in socialistic countries. So if, if you think that you would like socialistic life, you know, think about the Soviet Union, think about China, think about Cuba, think about Venezuela, places like that. And, uh, Life there tends to be uh, not solitary, but poor, nasty, brutish, and short, mm-hmm. to, to uh, quote Hobbes. Uh, Cal, because most ideas seem to be recycled, uh, do you, tell, tell the listeners what the, the, the woke history is. 
We're not seeing it for um, the first time, are we? No, 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 no. The the woke movement is basically a new sort of, uh, you know, chapter in progressivism. And the progressive movement harks back to the 1880s and 1890s, uh, generated people like uh, President uh, Wilson, uh, uh, who, who basically thought that we could uh, get rid of the United States Constitution. He actually said that uh, the Constitution was, was problematic and we needed to replace that. Um, the, the progressive movement has long uh, pushed for some degree of Marxist socialism. And what's happened is that whereas Karl Marx thought that uh, – the, the conflict would occur between classes, the the owners of businesses versus the employees of businesses, and that didn't actually happen in the more capitalistic, more free market economies. His his uh, descendants, so to speak, ideologically, of the Frankfurt School of the cultural Marxists decided, well, we're not seeing that conflict in classes. Instead, we see it uh, between genders, between uh, races, uh, skin colors. Um, uh, and and uh, between uh, gender identities and so on. And so basically what they've promoted is this notion that you have white males who are, uh, you know, privileged and using a hierarchical power over, over everybody else, and then everybody else is a victim of that, mm-hmm. uh, oppressed by white males. And the more different uh, groups you fit into, if you're, if you're a woman, you're oppressed. If you're a black woman, you're doubly oppressed. If you're a homosexual black woman, you're triply oppressed by white, you know, hierarchical males. And this is the intersectionality aspect of the woke movement. Uh, and all of this looks at people only in terms of the groups of which they are members, and it forgets that people do different things. And we are supposed to uh, to, to judge the, the moral quality of individuals by what they themselves do, not by the color of their skin. You know, uh, the, the, the late uh, Martin Luther King said in his I Have a Dream speech that he dreamt of the day when, when uh, uh, his daughter and others would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that's real justice. That's so interesting, Cal. Um, I, this is uh, there's a lot to sort through between now um, and the election, of course. And everybody wants to be informed and wants to understand what's going on with this social justice. You want to be sensitive to it, but you want to be biblical with it. So I, I really appreciate the distinctions that you're, you're giving us. Uh, uh, what else can we learn uh, between the differences of the two? Well, um, you know, I know you have more. Goes through the. Part of the book goes through a variety of different Bible passages that some people will claim require redistribution of wealth by governments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like the the, uh, sabbatical year law of Deuteronomy 15. Uh, But there, you know, the the suspension of debts is temporary. It only lasts during the sabbatical year, and debt collection resumes in the year following that. Or the Jubilee year law of of Leviticus 25, which says that – when someone sells you land, you have to give the land back to them in the year of Jubilee. Uh, that's every 50th year. 
But the point there is made very clearly in the passage. It says it's not the land you're selling, it's the harvest. So in the interim, since you have paid for this land, you are working this land and generating the harvests. And so you're paid back, and the land is essentially functioned as collateral for a loan. And because the harvests pay you back, you return the collateral at the end. Um, some people will point to uh, Acts chapters 2 and 4 that says that the early Christians in Jerusalem didn't consider whatever they had to be their own. Uh, they, they were selling and giving to the needs of the poor and so on. Uh, what we don't read there is that they considered what other people had to be their own, right? Uh, their attitude was kind of like uh, mikasa sukasa, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean I'm turning over the title to my house. It means I, I consider myself as having my home at your need as your need arises. And there are other things. But another part of the book, and, and uh, I, I really think this is perhaps one of the most important parts, deals with the difference between so-called positive rights and negative rights. Negative rights are rights against harm. Uh, My right not to be murdered, my right not to have my property stolen, my right not to have my name defamed, and so on. All these things coming out of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Positive rights are rights to particular benefits. And the problem with positive rights uh, is that, for one thing, um, they come into conflict. If if I have a right to food, regardless what I do, then somebody else must have a responsibility to provide that food to me, regardless what I do. Well, that means that the government, in order to get that done, is going to violate that person's right to his property in order to give me some property. So positive rights, rights to benefits, turn out to be uh, – internally self-contradictory as well as contradictory to negative rights. My right to life is actually not a right to life provided by others. It's a right against murder. My right to health care is not a right to have other people pay for my health care. It's a right for me to pay for health care as I'm able. Uh, That's a really important distinction, and I think it's one that unfortunately has been lost in, uh, in recent generations, that needs to be recovered. And I, I think that uh, a biblical approach to this will help us to do that. Mm-hmm. Social justice is not the same as biblical justice, and I think knowing the difference is important, especially in this uh, day and age. We'll take a little break. When we come back, more with Dr. Cal Beisner. If you've had a question for him, you can text it over to me, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Dr. Cal Beisner, he's written a great little booklet called Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. And it's a great uh, book to get your hands on. You can go to cornwallalliance.org. Uh, Cal, uh, imagine there's been plenty of people that have misused uh, the Bible and Scripture to try to promote their particular program or, or, their, um, or plan. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, for instance, uh, Jose Miranda, who is a a, a Latin American liberation theologian, 
he wrote a book called Communism in the Bible, and in his commentary on uh, Acts chapters 2 and 4, the early church there in Jerusalem, he said that what this these two passages make clear is that if you want to be a Christian, you have to be a communist. <laughs> now, wow. that, that just kind of flies in the face of the whole history of Christian ethics. Uh, communism has been a heresy of Christianity. Uh, in fact, there was a, a, a wonderful book uh, by Thomas Molnar titled uh, The Perennial Heresy that is all about the history of communistic thinking and how it has has been on the heretical fringes of Christianity through the centuries. But uh, that's certainly not the message of Acts 2 and Acts 4. Uh, there, all of the giving of property to uh, the poor was totally voluntary. We learned that from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where when Ananias and Sapphira sell a field and bring part of the price of the land to the apostles to be given to the poor, they claim that they're bringing all of the price. And the Apostle Peter says to Ananias, you know, while it was, it was yours, uh, wasn't it under your control? Even after you had sold it, wasn't it your disposal? Uh, this, is, this is clearly showing that this was a voluntary act. And uh, then Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias suddenly dropped dead. And shortly, Sapphira came in and and uh, gave the same story that they had given all of the money. And and uh, Peter said, "Well, the, the the men who carried your husband out are ready to carry you out." And she dropped dead too. So the Holy Spirit takes a pretty dim view of lying, including boasting about charitable giving that we don't do. Uh, but it was charitable giving. It was not forced. Uh, payment uh, by the state. You know, all of the places in the Bible that talk about giving to the poor address persons as individuals, as, as private individuals. They're not addressed to the state, to the, you know, the civil government. And uh, we, need to, we need to remember that. Mm-hmm. God, because you uh, write about this and talk about this a lot, have you uh, had a lot of response from believers that are kind of at a loss as to how to challenge the assertions of uh, the progressives and their and their social justice agenda? Yeah, I think that frustration is very, very widespread. And that's a major part of the reason why I wrote this booklet. I kept it short intentionally so that it would be something that people could get through reasonably, reasonably quickly. And I tried to keep it pretty simple. I, I don't think there's anything in there that is extremely complicated. And my aim was to put at people's fingertips, something that, they, that would help them to be able to see through the false notions of justice in the, the uh, progressive, woke uh, movement and be able to, to explain what real biblical justice is and how we know that that is so. And Bill, by the way, um, uh, we at the Cornwall Alliance will be glad to send a free copy of Social Justice versus Biblical Justice to anybody who makes a 100% tax-deductible donation mm-hmm. to the Cornwall Alliance. It doesn't matter how small that donation is, by the way. Of course, we'd, we'd love for it to be generous, but uh, no matter what the size, if people go to cornwallalliance.org, that's cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button, 
make a donation of any size, and then in the uh, comments field, just say social justice. We'll send them a free copy. Yeah, I'm not saying I have a herd mentality, Cal, but um, that's exactly how I got a copy of the book, the pamphlet, Social Justice versus that. Biblical Justice. I went on the CornwallAlliance.org and made a gift donation, and then I got one sent to me, so I appreciate that. Normally, as a radio host, I get one sent for free. <laughs> well, I, I would have been glad to have sent you one for free. I'm sure you, you, I'm, I'm sure you would have. So we're looking at an election coming up, and you know the, our nation has with liberty and justice for all. Um, so I guess that's an important uh, issue, and, and I, I think it's important that we understand uh, the difference between social and biblical justice. Any more things you can, uh, you can coach us on prior to the election? Well, uh, you know, this doesn't have so much to do with the election. It has something to do with things that are far more important, and that is the eternal destiny of souls. Mm -hmm. If we confuse the meaning of justice, it begins, to, uh, it begins to confuse justice with grace. And that's essentially what uh, the social justice movement does. And when you confuse justice with grace, you wind up twisting the gospel. Because the gospel is all about our being justified, declared righteous, and forgiven by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not what we merit by justice. It is what Christ has merited by justice, but he gives to us by grace. And when you, when you misdefine justice, you wind up corrupting the gospel. And that is the good news by which uh, sinners like me can be reconciled to the Holy God. Uh, if we mess up the gospel, well, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1.8, though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any other gospel than what we have preached, let him be anathema, that right. is, under the divine curse. Oof, that's so sobering. So if we want to get the gospel right, we better get justice right. Yeah. I've got kind of one more question about the woke movement, because it seems like I'm seeing some self-destruction that goes on as, as a result of it. I mean, I'm a big sports fan, and I love watching sports, but now it seems that uh, it's getting more polarized and political, and people are becoming more woke. And I, I do see that viewership is down in a lot of sports and playoffs. And is that uh, part of the self-destruction element of it? Well, it, obviously, it's not intentionally self-destructive, but what I think is happening is that as, as uh, sports heroes, as entertainers and so on, uh, turn more and more things political, uh, more and more people just say, hey, I'm sick and tired of that. I'm not going to tune in. I'm not going to watch your movies. I'm not going to watch your football games, your basketball games, your baseball games, because I want some parts of my life not to be political. You know, politics is a big enough part of life. We don't have to keep expanding it. Mm-hmm. Cal, I've got uh, some questions, but unfortunately, we're kind of getting out of time. Um, we should have booked you for a little bit longer segment, but uh, just remind listeners again, uh, the easiest place to go get a copy of this is the cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. And it's, uh, it's not a super long booklet, is it? Is it how many pages? Oh, what is it? I think it's about uh, 46 pages, something like that. Yeah, so it's a it's a sit down and read it in a couple hours, and there's a lot in there. And it's, um, yeah. it's uh, something I think you'll enjoy not only uh, reading but using as reference because there's going to be a lot of 
uh, conversations going forward on this topic, and it's good to be wise and to know the difference between social justice and biblical justice. Yep, and that's that's my aim in the whole booklet. And uh, if we if we do that right, we can get our politics right, and we can get our gospel right. And uh, the gospel is far more important. But politics is not not all that unimportant either. Mm-hmm. All right, that uh, wraps up our time. Um, for the show. Thank you, uh, Cal, for being on. Um, I would love for you to stick around after. Don't get off the phone. I'd love to talk to you after the show ends, uh, but I would appreciate that if you can just stick around for a little bit. And I want to thank all my guests. I want to thank uh, the guys who uh, came on and did their duty today uh, for Guide Talk. You had a lot of great questions that were answered, and uh, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, so I also want to just be honoring all the pastors out there and the hard work you do. And you can head over to MyFaithRadio.com. I think we, you can talk about your pastor and brag about uh, him. And you can uh, get uh, your pastor in the drawing for some goodies. Have a great night, everyone. I look forward to our time tomorrow already. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.